0: It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 45, Mischief. My name is Paul Abbott, and to review this book, I'm joined from in front of their respective computers by Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello. And obviously, we're still in lockdown here for the moment. In fact, Morgan has just had his first birthday in lockdown, haven't you?
1: Well, I, I guess lockdown was just about to happen last year, so it was effectively more or less locked down. But yeah, this is the first uh, fully official one.
2: Yeah. Um, yep.
0: And steve you're coming up on your second birthday in lockdown. I am,
2: yeah, yeah. I'll have had two.
0: If it gets to my second birthday in lockdown, I will not be happy. Gosh. Is that September?
2: Yeah, surely not.
0: Let's hope it up. Anyway, it might be another couple of months before we can actually get together and do this in person again, but I promise you it will happen. <laughs> we will reunite gloriously one day, even if it's just for the last book at this rate. But, you know, I'm sure we'll be back before then. Um. Anyway, don't forget to follow us on Twitter or Instagram at hark87podcast or email us at hark87podcast at gmail.com. And if you're feeling nice, and why wouldn't you be, why not pop onto iTunes and give us a five-star rating because we would like it. So do go on. Anyway, let's hop into our McBain, McTime machine once again and head back to 1993 for some mischief. I did do some research on 1993. Obviously, we lived through it. I remember it from my point of view being 15 or whatever. But yeah, I haven't got much stuff written down because it was pretty miserable when you actually looked into it. Uh, I don't know if anything leapt out from your minds from that period.
2: I don't think so. I think you just wrapped up in your own little world, I suppose, aren't you?
1: Yeah, just busy being a, a sulky teenager and not really paying much attention to much beyond sort of my assorted pop cultural fascinations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's what I've written down here. I've said, I've said this is a pretty depressing year, so I've given up looking. Kind of glad I was a child and didn't really know what was going on. But yeah, so the way I've done it is 1993, we've got more IRA bombings. We yeah. have the rise of UKIP and the BNP. Oh, good God. Who have continued to trouble us even more in, in recent years. But I suppose we've got the joyous thing. In the 8th of January, the Ford Motor Company introduced the Mondeo.
2: Ooh, Wonderful. Well, yeah. Re- replaced the um, uh, the Cortina, I suppose, didn't it?
0: Yes, yeah, so it's a big family car, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it was the most interesting thing I could find <laughs> for um, industry, let's say. 20th of January, Bill Clinton becomes president of the United States of America. So there's a change. Um this is in again contrasting to modern times. On the twenty-sixth of January, nineteen ninety-three, the Bank of England lowers the interest rate in England. Can you guess what they lower the interest rate to oh, in nineteen ninety-three? It would
2: have been well. It was very high interest rates. Probably lowered it to like eight percent or something.
0: It was six percent. Yeah. When the interest rate at the moment is 0.1%. one.
1: Uh. Yes. Yeah, something very much like
0: that. Dream of an interest rate of 6% if you're saving, <laughs> <laughs> aren't you? So, um, yeah, that was the lowest it had been since 1978. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah. I suppose the thing that, I, looking back, that I remember most as a significant event, only that I've realised later, is Waco happens in 1993.
1: Oh, God, of course, yeah. The Branch Davidians.
0: Yeah, which, you know, that, that um, biopic or documentary, you know, faux documentary thing that they made. That used to be on TV all the time. Ah. And it must have been made pretty quickly after that had, uh, had happened. But uh, yeah, that was that was a huge news story, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There was one done recently, I think, wasn't there?
0: Oh, yes, I think there might have been another one. It was, uh,
2: I think I've got recorded on my telly and never watched one of those types of things.
0: Yeah, it's not a sort of relaxing, <laughs> light-hearted evening's viewing, is it?
1: Not exactly, not.
0: But yeah, so the, uh, the end of February is the start of the Waco siege. Uh, one, and the only other thing I've got written down is I used to. Well, I grew up in Scarborough, or just outside of Scarborough in North Yorkshire. Uh, by 1993, I'd been living in Stoke for two or three years, but I was very interested in the news of June of 1993 when a whole hotel just fell off a cliffside in Scarborough. <laughs> oh and that made, that made national news when the Holbeck Hall Hotel slid into the sea. Which is very
2: careless of it.
0: Well, indeed. But you know, you as a geologist must know that the risks of uh, building on top of a cliff.
2: Well, yes, indeed. I don't don't remember that happening though, but
0: yeah. So there you go. Hotels falling in the sea, the Waco siege, and uh, Bill Clinton. So there you go. That was 1993. (laughs) But as you both said, yeah, we were wrapped up in our own little teenage worlds then. So (laughs) I think we were probably better for it. Okay, McBain roundup, as usual, as well. Uh, Mischief is the only published book by McBain, or Hunter, or anyone, in 1993. So it's his only, only published work that year. But there is some stuff on TV. We've got a Russian adaptation of Killer's Wedge, made for TV. Um And I cannot read the Cyrillic alphabet, <laughs> but it translates as Way to Kill, apparently.
2: Way to Kill? Uh,
0: Yeah, uh, made for Studio H. Then also we have the ongoing series My Town, which is the second of the uh, Japanese adaptations based on the 87th Precinct. So we have two episodes in 93. We have My Town 2, which was Killer's Payoff, and we have My Town 3, which was Lady Killer. So that's an ongoing series, like two or three episodes a year they have, Hmm. basically. Uh, But for McBain himself, 1992 sees more health troubles. So we're in 1993, and I didn't mention this in the last one, so I'll mention it now, is 1992 is when he has this precancerous lesion removed from his larynx. Uh So that's the start of his real, really bad health troubles that are going to, unfortunately, be something we'll have to talk about more as the years go by from here on in. But for the time being, he's had this operation the year before this book comes out. And maybe that's contributed to why he's only produced one written work that mm-hmm. year. Apart from the fact he's getting on a bit anyway. And so, what else have I got noted down here? Oh, yes. 1993 is the year that Scott Meredith dies. So, Scott Meredith was Hunter's agent. And he was the the, the literary agency that uh, Evan Hunter worked for originally. Oh, And... Oh, The only reason I mentioned about this guy dying is because there's an article written by Lawrence Block about Evan Hunter slash Ed McBain, and he mentions that when uh, Scott Meredith died in 1993, Evan Hunter started ringing people up, calling all his friends and saying, did you hear the news? Scott died. Isn't that great? Isn't that the best thing you've ever heard? (laughs) Oh, God. Which is like, what? I mean, they'd had a very strange relationship towards the end of their their working time together, which was in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, I think. But apparently um, that was when Evan Hunter was going through his first divorce and he was trying to get out of his deal with Scott Meredith and Scott called uh, Anita Melnick, the first Mrs. Hunter, and basically said, you and I have interests in common and perhaps ought to join forces. And apparently Scott Meredith had some stuff on Evan Hunter about his mistress and some, and possibly, this is Lawrence Block's words, I don't know for definite, but the Dean Hudson books... The deal ah. that he made for the money under the desk type thing for that, if indeed he did, apparently came out. So, uh, mm. gosh. So I think this, if Lawrence Block's reporting is is correct, then presumably Evan Hunter was like, "Well, they're the person who could blow the lid on my denial of being Dean Hudson as dead." So <laughs> I've just mentioned it because it's information that's out there. Yeah.
2: Mm. Interesting.
0: Intriguing. Yeah. So, let us get to the book, which is Mischief, and, well, I'll check in first. I've read this before. Is this a first-timer for anyone?
1: It's, it's a first-time for me.
0: All right, okay. Steve-O?
2: Uh, no, no, I've, 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 I've read it before.
0: Oh, okay, and we might as well just say up front, The Deaf Man's Back, and this is book, what, one, two, three, four, five of The Deaf Man's, so it's his fifth appearance, yeah. First time since Eight Black Horses.
2: So it's about ten, ten, 10 actual years gone by, something like that. Yeah,
0: not far off, about I eight,
2: think. 84-ish, something like that for Eight Black. I'm just guessing there, I don't know. I've not got it in front of me or anything, but... Well, a little while, a little while, isn't it?
0: Uh, yeah, Eight Black Horses was 1985, right, so right.
2: it is. Yeah. Eight, right. eight, eight
0: years, yeah, yeah. Eight years, not far off. But, yeah, so he's brought him back, and... Well, I'll tell you what, let's get the uh, dedication out of the way, then we can start talking about the book itself properly, because it's dedicated to Judy and Michael Cornea, not Cornea like the eye.
2: Are they neighbours by any chance? They're always neighbours, aren't they?
0: Guess what? They're neighbours, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the only reason I know this is because, well, I did a Google search for it because of uh, the way details of uh, legal things are published online from America anyway. There was a court case about land ownership in 2008, which was to do with the place um, where they lived, which was, this is in Connecticut, this is um, Silvermine, Connecticut, which is where Evan Hunter lived in his converted sawmill. And so he lived at 192 Perry Avenue and uh, these guys lived at um, 187 Perry Avenue. And I found that because they were named in in a... Court case about some land dispute. So <laughs> there you go. And I did see a picture from 2018 where it was about the the community in in Silvermine had had funded a new sign saying "Welcome to Silvermine," and there was like a, a local, you know, online paper thing, and it had a picture of uh, Judy Cornier in there. So mm-hmm. uh, it's quite an old lady, but
2: something must be yeah. the source of Silvermine Avenue or whatever. It's Silvermine Avenue, isn't it?
0: There is a silver mine in, in Isola in the
2: book. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah. the posh place, isn't it? So he must have
0: Yeah, silver mine oval. Is...
2: Yeah, so that's it, yeah, yes, he must have
0: <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, that's who they are and we've got that out of the way. So I'll tell you what. I am going to ask Steve O to attempt to summarise this book. Oof.
2: Right, well, <laughs> yes. The the thing that immediately occurred to me in this book, in which we were uh, In total contrast to the last book, which I am fairly sure we were saying was perhaps the most single-story, straightforward Mm -hmm. one we'd had in a long time, am I right in saying that? Yes, that's
0: it. This
2: would definitely be polar opposite in which the, well, I I, I kind of even lost count of the number of separate stories, but at least, well, five or six, something like that, all all very bitty, all running in parallel, right from the beginning all the way to the end, pretty much.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're so not
2: wrong. lots of plates spinning in this one, so he's yeah. kind of made a big departure from... As he pretty much always does, we always kind of say that this one's different to the last one, but that was quite pronounced, I think. <laughs> so, well, in no particular order, then... <laughs> First in a series of murder of writers, but not writers, as you you or I may know, some graffiti artists, as perhaps they're now known or once upon a time known. Um, So somebody um, out prowling the streets, trying to find somebody in the dead of night, spray uh, painting on a wall. Who gets shot in the head and chest quite violently? I seem to remember, mm. and that is the first little strand of story. And then after that, are we introduced to an elderly person who's dumped in a a empty railway station waiting room in the middle of the night. Lots of middle of the night things going on, and that is the first in a series of elderly uh, people with dementia being found in strange places with no um, identification on them. Mm. And then we have got the deaf man's on a boat, isn't he? <laughs> yes, he makes his
0: entrance on a boat.
2: Slicks it seems a bit unnecessary that he's on a <laughs> boat, but he's on a boat nonetheless because he's um, he is... Um, making a very careful watch of the brand new Department of Sanitization. And the book quite cleverly tells you about this new building just being opened and there was a big kind of shindig there where they all all the top brass of the police and the, the city council and whatnot um, gathered on a particular day. Uh, and then they tell you they're all going to gather there on some next date, but uh, all the top brass aren't going to be there. And I remember reading that because, you know what I'm like, I can never, ever remember what hmm. happens in these books. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking, well, what on earth is he going on about? And I found it a very odd bit in that book, and yet it absolutely come back to the absolute crux of the story huh. right at the end.
0: Indeed. So,
2: yes, you're left hanging there thinking, why on earth is he scanning this book? And why is he telling us about this monthly ritual that happens there that he doesn't give you very much information if any, about and then we've got a <laughs> story about a, a, a rap group, haven't we?
0: We have, yeah, which uh,
2: kind of links to one of the other stories, but for a good while is its own distinct story and like the back, um, like the backstory to this uh, rap group and this forthcoming uh, gig that they've got. And then you've got a story about uh, the the hostage negotiation team. I think that comes in perhaps a little bit later on, but it's uh, used to reintroduce Eileen Burke again. Um, And quite a nasty story about one of her colleagues being shot in a uh, a, 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 um, uh, hostage negotiation uh, scenario. And I'm running out of steam now. Well, is that (laughs) enough? Uh, I'm sure there's...
1: There are bound to be more. Possibly another uh... one.
2: But certainly, whilst I'm saying there's a lot in this, the main one is the elderly people and then obviously the... The deaf man. No, well, the main ones, the graffiti artists, I suppose.
1: It's hard to say what the main one is, I think.
2: Yeah, so all these little stories run in parallel for the entire book. And another observation of the book, which I will before I, while I finish just now, is that I bet you that there is not very many entries in the canon that feature Steve Carella less than this book. Because he is yeah. not in it very much at all, apart from answering the phone to the deaf man a few times and opening his letters. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Um, d- despite the fact that there's all these different, um, I think Parker and Kling, possibly in Halls, so
0: yeah, probably oh, Parker.
2: Yeah. Really, I don't know. He's not often centre stage, but he is a little bit in this one.
0: Yeah, and Maya Maya gets a story to himself. So it's um, yeah. So what's he missed then, Morgan? Because he's re- he's recalled lots of stories, but there's other stuff in there as well. I, I've I've,
1: to be honest, I've, I've already by the time he got to the end of the, the list of things that that we did get through, I've already forgotten what the first ones were. That's, <laughs> it's that kind of book.
2: Yeah, yeah. They, they, they're not meaty chapters. It's very much like a few pages on this, few pages on that, then on the other, then back to the other one, and. Um, yeah, you know, I left it late to reread it, but I just absolutely monstered through it. It is like definitely a book that lends itself to be, you know, mm. sucking you in and being able to be read very, very quickly. I know, I know they're all like that, really, but th- this one especially, yeah. I found.
0: Well, the other thing I wanted to mention that we didn't mention, though, is we also have a small story for Teddy Carella in here. Of course, yeah. Where she's going on a pro-choice march and that ends in a quite a dramatic and interesting way, but it's that's an interesting little character study for her doing yeah. something more than she's ever done before, really, True. which is interesting. So, okay. Ha. I think we've got across the impression that there's a lot going on here, uh, but I've got to come to Morgan though, and say, if we look at the thread, so we've got a lot of this is about a group called spit shine. Yes. Okay. Now, we're all musicians, <laughs> uh, Morgan and I've been in plenty of bands. Now we're not hip hop artists or rap artists, but so this group Spitshine, who are going to be playing this big free outdoor concert, who do you think they're supposed to be? What's their analogue in the real world? I can't I, I, pin it down.
1: I don't think they exactly have one. Um, it's, uh, it's honestly that uh, I, I, I've heard you saying that there was going to be a. a book coming up with Ed McBain taking on hip hop and I I, I knew it was coming at some point and my heart sank when I started reading this and realized it was going to be this um it's it wasn't quite as cringeworthy as I thought it was going to be but that's only because I'd really expected it to be incredibly cringeworthy Mm -hmm. Um, but I can't pinpoint an exact um equivalent particularly because it's a it's a, a mixed gender group, which yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of hip hop groups at the time, I guess like Arrested Development were, were like that. But then in, they would have been much more on the kind of um, the sort of post dilla Soul kind of side of things rather than this sort of militant kind of um, approach that Shine obviously take. It yeah. seems like a, a, a real sort of clumsy mishmash of lots of different things that would have been happening at the time.
0: Yeah, because and the funny thing is the way he tells about these people in the book, it makes me read it like they're an amateur group. But then at one point he says, "Oh, he had a song at number seventeen in the chart." Yeah. So they're not amateurs at all. No. So it's a strange one. I think. I mean, there's there's another book yet, obviously that's got more uh, oh. more music stuff in, which is I think this one is better than that one in terms of how it portrays yeah. music stuff. But I think the weird thing is that this it throws back to Calypso. Yes. Which is, is mad. And we're talking about the deaf man coming back after eight years. Calypso was in 1979. So, after Kiss, the book before this, where we, like, exactly like Steve I said, we basically went, this is really simple. It reintroduces the characters very nicely. This one is like, well, it is loads of throwback stuff, yeah. loads of callback stuff So if you don't know about these things, yeah. I mean. I also, it did. did, did...
1: Did either of you think there was any actual purpose in throwing back to Calypso? It's, no, does it not, achieve anything at all?
0: Not really, <laughs> no. I don't think it does. And also, I have a problem at, uh, if from a someone who has uh, taught music copyright a little bit mm-hmm. as well. And I know it's, you know, I'm saying that from someone who's doing it in the 21st century rather than in 1993. But the, there's a big chunk of this book that is about a guy from the group spitshine going to buy a song Mm. which is not a thing you do certainly not in the way that they do it in this book he doesn't need to go and see chloe chatterton the chatterton the widow of the guy from calypso to buy a song from her because she's got the copyright i mean you could do that Mm. but there's no need to do that not quite. There's nothing to stop them just having gone on stage and performed it and paid the performing royalties. Yep. So that's a whole load of the book that doesn't need to exist.
1: There. It, it really is, and yeah, it just it also just didn't ring true. I I, I don't know of any hip hop groups who ever really perform like a whole song as a cover. Like I, I guess Walk This Way by Run DMC. Aerosmith is literally the only one I can think of. They'll, they'll. Otherwise, you know, you might take a bit of a chorus hook from something, but yeah, yeah. never. No, no hip hop group would ever cover like verses of, yeah. of someone else's song. It's just not a thing that happens.
2: Hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's never his forte. These music no. kind of. No, I don't think like... he even bothers trying as well, does he? No, that's, that's really? It. He's,
1: kind of, he's hoping the reader isn't going to know as well.
2: Yeah, even yeah. his ridiculous hippie sound tech <laughs> criminal is like just kind of a total, like, like well, yeah. I don't know what the word is. Stereotype. Hippie, yeah, isn't just he, so. some stereotype from about, yeah.
0: Comedy Woodstock throwback. Y- yeah,
2: 30 years, well, 25 years prior, kind of thing. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah, he's good at doing his research, McBain. And and I do know in these later years he did use people to research, but it doesn't feel like he's researched the music industry appropriately. He's Uh, researched, for example, the technical needs to achieve the deaf man's aims, uh, like how to, you know, intercept in a sound system, which is fairly realistic if you want to look at it that way. Uh, But yeah, the sort of social side of of the music industry, that uh, way that works, it's like he has just sort of assumed a lot. I find.
2: Yeah, it probably didn't interest him in the slightest, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, sus- I suspect.
0: But yeah. there's a lot going on in this book, so, I mean, if he'd, if he'd really dug into it, that would have been a book in itself. Yeah. And he could it, have done it. It could have just been a deaf man book.
1: It could. Um, yeah, I, I just felt like he could have missed out an awful lot of the actual... He could have pretty much missed out all of the stuff with Spitshine, really. Yeah. Not focused on any of the artists, and then it's had a bit more time to focus on what the Deaf Man was actually doing, rather than getting into this this unconvincing rap group and their and one of their members' relationship with a character who we'd all forgotten from <laughs> a previous decade.
0: Yeah. absolutely it's i don't know it's an odd one i mean to to sum up the deaf man's scheme and we're assuming obviously that everyone's read it now and if not you know usual spoiler warnings the deaf man's scheme is is quite simple really he's going to take the opportunity to intercept a free concert in the park which the cops take ages to figure out what it is um he's going to intercept it with a pre-recording of his own voice to cause a race riot which he's going to use as cover to then go to the Department of Sanitation, as Steve O mentioned, and rob a load of drugs that are going to be destroyed. So that's that's the scheme. And he and it works. Yeah. He gets he gets away with it to a point, you know, <laughs> obviously. So that's the deaf man's role in this book. And it's not quite as uh full of arcane and twisted puzzles. It's basically he sends Steve Carella, one chapter of a sci-fi book, which I did check, doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, although the name of the author that he's given it is the name of an actual artist, so I don't know if that was deliberate or not. Um, mm. But yeah, so he's just trying—he's just constantly trying to get Steve Carella to pinpoint what he's actually doing, and and it all just happens a bit too late, as usual, with the eighty-seventh precinct. So I don't know—is—is is the deaf man in? the incidental story in this um
2: yeah a little bit i think yeah i don't um, know um i i, 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 th- I it's all sl- t- t- they are all the incidental know, you, stories yeah, th- yeah they are to a certain extent definitely um i think if if i think if you start taking any of them out i think the whole thing suddenly would all fall down really i think the thing that It's probably Mm. what makes it work is the fact that there's so much going on. But if you start taking a few of those strains away, I think it would then be more obvious that none of the stories in themselves are actually particularly strong, are they? But
0: Yeah, maybe. But but
2: somehow it works, maybe, because none of them are uh, overshadowing the others. I, I don't know.
0: Well, there's certainly a lot to to get your teeth into and keep mm-hmm. you keep you reading. I must say.
2: Yeah, the, the, you know the one where they tried to guess the big gathering. It, it just seems quite astonishing that they didn't know there was going to be a, <laughs> a free concert attended by two hundred thousand people in the in the park, in the park opposite the opposite the, the, the <laughs> which just seems a bit mad. But then again, you know. It's uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Right. Well, let's jump track then to the graffiti artist case. So we we start out with a shooting and we end up with a string of shootings of graffiti artists, including graffiti artists whose method is to scratch into windows, Mm. which is something I'd never heard of before. I know people scratch and, um, you know make marks on all sorts of things. I didn't realise it was a habit of uh, graffiti, professional, let's say, graffiti artists.
1: No, I've never heard of that either. I assume that's something that he's read a news report about or something and worked in there, but
0: it's nothing I've heard of.
2: Doesn't like a union of uh, graffiti artists meet at one point? Uh,
0: Essentially, yeah, yeah. Which is odd and I don't know. obviously it's, it's New York in the early 90s and graffiti is certainly a, a thing that's been on McBain's mind before because he's mentioned yeah. it several times over the recent years anyway and he's clearly finally got to the point where he's, he's made it the main mechanism for what is essentially quite a straightforward and common type of detective story Perfect. anyway although there's a point in this where they they go into one of the victim's lockers and discover 22 cans of spray paint or something which then doesn't get taken to be used for evidence and they have to go Some and fish power. it out of the out of the garbage yeah, later they, yeah
1: yeah again it's another story which on several levels totally stretches credibility past breaking point isn't it really
0: yeah it certainly <sighs> does Um, And I will say then, if we look at the other main story, which is the the dumping of these uh, older people by person or persons unknown, um, which is referred to in the book as granny dumping, uh, is probably the most, when you think about it, the most powerful story Mm. in there. And I did do, I, I literally searched for the term granny dumping in the New York Times archive. And this comes up from March of 1992. So this is... ...a thing that was happening. This is something true to life from the period. And now I'm not going to read out the entire thing... ...but um, I'll read the first paragraph... ...and then just skim through some of the bits of it. It says, uh, Granny Dumping by the Thousands is the headline... It was a sad and troubling story. John Kingery, 82, suffering from Alzheimer's disease and wearing a sweatshirt inscribed, proud to be an American, was abandoned outside the men's room at a dog racing track in Port Falls, Idaho. His wheelchair had been stripped of identification and his clothing labels ripped out. He couldn't remember his own name. And then the article goes on from there, talking about how social workers are talking about this is a a phenomenon that's, that's happening and how it's about the fact that essentially because people can't get access to social care to help them, mm-hmm. desperate relatives are taking these these methods of dumping people, um, which is very, very sad. And most people will have had some experience of, of having relatives with uh, Alzheimer's or dementia. And so I think this is probably the most powerful story in the book. But yeah, drawn straight from real life, it seems...
1: Yeah, it's 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 pretty heartbreaking. Um, the, the obviously them being drawn from real life, the most credible part of the the novel, and yeah, it does actually kind of ground it a bit. Whereas much of the rest of it does feel fairly ludicrous. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, the the most powerful of of those threads, I would say. Yeah,
2: it was the type of thing reading it, just thinking, yeah, this is it's so daft and unbelievable that you just knew it was based in some truth uh that you'd read yeah. uh, it
0: couldn't have been something you'd just have made up you'd have had no. to that would have been completely bizarre i think um and so it gives uh, Maya, Meyer, Meyer and cotton horse the chance to team up on a uh, undercover operation to try and follow the very slim evidence that they've got from this this um social services blanket
2: yeah, and goes, uh, quite good scenes with him going undercover, aren't they?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, indeed. He has his teeth all mangled in, like, with makeup <laughs> and stuff, and then gets told afterwards that the enamel's never going to grow back on them. <laughs>
2: yeah. Mm. Yeah, which he's, which he's not very happy about, is he? No. Quite, under, quite understandably. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so they've got very slim threads to, to chase up, for Maya to chase up these what's happening with these these people who are being dumped. But one of the clues is uh, another h- huge bit of um, Ed McBain's own personal history because it's a tattoo that leads them to something. So one of the old men that's dumped has a tattoo of the USS Hansen DD-832. And the USS Hansen DD-832 was the ship that Salvatore Lombino... Evan Hunter served on in 1945. Mm. So it is a direct throwback to his own personal naval history. Amazing, Yeah, so that ship was launched in March of 1945. And as he says in this book, it was commissioned in in May of 45. And basically he saw peacetime stuff because he was in at the very end of the Second World War. They finally got through to the the Pacific as part of the cleanup operation or whatever you want to call it. But, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting throwback to his own life there he's used. And uh, what I couldn't find out was if any of the names of, of other crew members that are mentioned in the book were actual people. Because <laughs> although I have some records from, like, uh, my research into his personal history, I don't have, like, the entire ship's roster, so I couldn't check those names, sadly.
2: So it seems likely, though, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I I can it imagine it may well them. be. Yeah. So, uh, Yeah. It's a very powerful story, that, and, and again, could could have been a, uh, an investigation in and of itself, maybe, if you'd have expanded it, but that would have been a very hard read, I think. Yeah. So, oh, blimey, there's so much to go into. There's so much to go into. Let me scroll through my little list of what happens per chapter and what we've got. We've got Parker following up on the graffiti shootings and basically... I don't want to say falling, falling in lust with the mother of one of the victims.
2: Yeah, he's got the hot uh, for the uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, he discovers that he doesn't object to um, to um, accents if they happen to belong to women who he's attracted to.
0: Yes, yeah, and it's yeah, his sort of personal self-loathing is um, is on play, but he he just really wants to get laid. And you can't quite tell by the end of it whether he's softening a little bit. Um I think it's something that McBain deals with a bit better in terms of what happens with Fat Ollie in books yeah. to come. Yeah. But it's it's a little bit of a little bit of a dry run with Parker here for the same same situation. Putting a bigot with someone from a different racial group. Anyway, and obviously race is one of the massive things running throughout this entire yeah. book. Uh, what else have we got? We've got uh, Monaghan and Monroe cropping up to try and remember how old Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr are in one <laughs> sequence. <laughs> um, guessing that they're saying that McCartney must be at least 50 and they would have been right. So, yeah. Although he thinks the Stones are older than the Beatles and he's uh, he's wrong there anyway by a couple of years the other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got yeah we've got a couple of uniformed officers who discover one of the uh, dumped older people uh, who are having an affair. So they have their own little moment oh, of yeah. um, trying to get it on in a police car and then discovering someone. Keep running through. Well, we have uh, Teddy Carella remembering one of her first relationships with a boy called Salvatore, who wanted to change his name. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and that's actually that's quite nice because we get the whole telling of the the way her and Steve met. Yes. So that's nice because we've never had that told in quite as as much full detail. Um, yeah, and then Teddy Carellas go into this pro-choice protest and ends up with a load of blood dumped over her by a pro-lifer. That's mad. Yep. I think it sticks with um, McBain's liberal outlook. Yeah. Obviously, and to make Teddy pro-choice, but yeah, suddenly to have her. Deciding to up and get involved in this, this thing and and stand firm and, and basically freak out the people who are trying to freak them out is an interesting thing, unconnected to anything else in the book.
1: It is. It seems like a an odd sort of sudden thing to to give Teddy to do just just out of the blue, really, doesn't it? But um, yeah, it's an interesting um, little side. Yeah. He, does, he
2: does that occasionally with her character, though, doesn't he? Just like randomly something fairly unrelated to the rest of the book topic.
0: Yes, yeah. Like when he sent her off to try and get a job and and she was getting propositioned rather than, you know, oh, getting yeah. the job and things like that and having to deal with those situations. Mm. Yeah. And as we keep working through the book, what else have we got? Well, we get like well, you mentioned before, Steve-O, Eileen Burke comes back in now yeah fully established on the hostage negotiation team she's uh called out of bed in the middle of the night to come and do some hostage negotiation which ends up with and one of her colleagues shot in the face and we have some quite detailed medical stuff don't we yeah it's
2: all it's, quite uh, grizzly all that yeah it
1: really is yeah
0: so yeah um but that leads to the introduction of sharon cook so sharon cook is the deputy chief surgeon she's black
2: She's been in it before, though, hasn't she?
0: No, this is her first time. Her very
2: first time. I couldn't quite remember. Um,
0: but, but we're going to be seeing a lot more of her professionally and personally, because by the end of the book, Kling, who's worried about Eileen, when he hears that a female hostage negotiator's been shot, rushes to find her and then ends up meeting Sharon and inviting her out. You know, And the book closes on her agreeing to go on a date with him and, you know, Perhaps she's heard about her Bert's past, so she's she's a bit uh, like, well, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Then we get all these little scenes of... So the deaf man story is carrying on. He's he's getting his crew together like he normally does, including a woman driver who he, he says, go away and put on weight, so you look more like a man. Um, it's
2: because they're all... Uh, yeah, he, he wants a... They're all bin people, aren't they? Refuse <laughs> yeah. collectors, and he, yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's happening, and all the while he's he's relying on the idea that the city is teetering on the edge, and he's t- and it gives McBain the excuse to talk about um, stuff like how many guns there are in the city, how many people are carrying guns. Also, how he's discussing how the immigrant population seems to him to be less integrated into the city. Mm. Uh, compared to how it had been in the past, the difference about being an American and how you you take on the identity of your adopted country and stuff like that. Difficult stuff to discuss, and um, yeah. but it's at the core of this this thing entirely. So the deaf man's relying... So we have lots of little vignettes, hmm. which makes it sound much more pleasant than actually what happens, <laughs> which is basically every other pay, paragraph, every, not every other paragraph, every other chapter you have a little vignette of someone just shooting someone yep. because... It's, it's the city. Yep. So that's nice. And he's relying on that attitude to be in play when he intercepts the big concert and has this blaring racist stuff coming out to whip the crowd into a frenzy. Which um, he
2: does for the only point of creating diversion. Yeah. Which he but, probably doesn't even really need. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't know, because it, it's, it's a weird one. Um. One of our friends on Twitter, Matthew Sullivan, pointed out that when the day that that happens on is April the 4th, uh-uh. which is the um, anniversary day of the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated in
2: 1968. Oh, right,
0: okay. And although he doesn't actually draw a specific connection to that, but I wonder if that was, you know, Matthew yeah. was suggesting that it might have been part of the it, reason for that date.
1: It does seem like an odd coincidence from to have specifically picked that date.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, it is what he managed to achieve there, kind of. Plausible? Seemed a bit science fiction-y.
1: Yeah, if if people were at a concert and some racist stuff came over the PA, would people all immediately whip out out guns and just start shooting each other? No, no,
2: they would not. Well, I I was just thinking somebody (laughs) on some bit of that would just it off wouldn't they
0: yeah
2: <laughs> no matter what yeah,
0: it, it would literally be the work of seconds yes, to do that yes it
2: just that all
0: because if you realised that the faders on the desk weren't working to cancel it you would literally just hit a power switch a kill switch on the power or you would just pull out some cables yeah Um, and I would have thought that the people that probably would have been worse off would have been the band on stage yeah. through a misunderstanding who would, might have been shot yeah. if anyone rather than the crowd turning on each other especially as it's a crowd that is mainly a big multi-ethnic crowd, but mainly black. Hmm. So I, I don't know. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I I get his point about sort of, you know, these simmering tensions and it just takes a, a spark to kind of ignite it, but nah, no.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we've, <laughs> we've come off the back of a year that's been very, very fraught in terms of, um, well, the term would have been race relations at once upon a time, wouldn't it? And obviously we've had the Black Lives Matter protests and, and lots of very, very important and very, very relevant um, high-profile protests in the, in the last year or so. You know, it's the, an ongoing thing that has to be dealt with in America. It's obviously very, very fraught at the moment. But it's that tends to be police and people rather than people and people. Absolutely. So this doesn't quite ring true, but it's it's amazing how it feels like it's the same issue that we're dealing with now. Uh, I must say, yeah, yeah. I can't work out why because it he, he basically he starts a race riot in this book, and it's so we 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 leave it, we go with Steve Carella to chase the deaf man, and so we don't see any more about the race riot. Uh-huh. That's it. It's it's a paragraph.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know. It just goes on. Long enough for uh, to kill off a character who we've just brought back for yeah. for, for no no distinct reason. Yeah, like, bring him back. Oh, and there they go.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, and then the you know the book uh, rolls along towards the end, and uh, we have a little scene with the uh, the deaf man and his gang celebrating. Uh, the fellas leave to take their share of the drugs to go and presumably sell them and, and make all the money. And the deaf man is hanging around with this uh, lady that he told to go away and put on weight. And finally, the sizzling sexual tension boils over. She ties him up and shoots him in the chest. <laughs> Which is such a strange way to deal with the deaf man. And I was, it's How did he get into that situation that he would be the victim? That's That's an odd one.
1: Yeah, it seems like a, an, an uncharacteristic blunder for him.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he's normally a very good judge of character, isn't he? But, uh, yeah.
0: I think he over relied on his sexual magnetism oh, and wow. power. Yeah,
2: well, he
1: uh, he, 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 he does he... have quite some sexual magnetism and power, doesn't he? As we know. But <laughs> uh, when put him up against the most voluptuous uh, sanitation engineer in all of Isola, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's not match for her.
0: <laughs> yeah it's interesting but by the time they catch up to the hotel room that's been f- sort of brought to their attention because it's a hotel a motel room full of blood and a trail of blood leading to what would have been a car somehow the deaf man has managed to get away having despite having two slugs in the chest and having been tied up so yeah well we won't see any more of him oh will <laughs> we <laughs> right right Anyway, if we don't start summing this up soon, we're uh, going to go on for ages. It's it is a huge book. It's almost too much to deal to deal with in in any level of detail, really. Yeah, well, I mean, we haven't really discussed how the the graffiti artist thing plays out, but oh, yeah. it's it's kind of standard fare,
2: I think. Yeah, that that's pretty obvious from not that long, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Um... And, or so it seemed to me, anyway.
1: Yeah, and just that's another thing that just stretches credibility ridiculous. Like, oh yeah, we we uh, wanted an excuse to to um, kill him off, so planted the paint cans and just the whole the whole scheme just seems absolutely ridiculous to me.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah.
1: It's just, if you wanted to get rid of someone, that's the last, the the absolute last way you'd consider trying to go about it.
0: Yeah, it's because th- the problem is that the the person they're trying to get rid of, who's one of the victims here, is the one that sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. The
1: that's- One who very obviously isn't the same as all the others. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh... <laughs>
2: Yeah, they'd be best trying to get the graffiti artists, like being um, ninja lawyers or something. That would be more credible, <laughs> wouldn't it? Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. Right. Well, I think we'll see how this is reflected in us in our summing up anyway, because it's that all said, and we we do sound like we're being sort of a bit um, down on the book, but there is so much to enjoy as a reading experience. Yeah,
2: no, I I, think overall I, I did enjoy it, but, uh, it, yeah, it certainly um, beggars belief at <laughs> that, of, yeah. a mental level.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, well, then, that being the case, Steve, do you wish to sum up and score?
2: Uh, well, yeah, I suppose, yeah, I've kind of... yeah, No, I, I did enjoy it, as I say, read it through very quickly, and I quite you know, you always quite like these when he does something a bit different to the one that you've just read. Um, And, yeah, none of the kind of stories seem to overshadow the others, which is which I think is quite good when you've got multiple stories, because it's always quite annoying having a big, meaty main story that you're dead interested in, and then some sort of you know, secondary or tertiary yarn that you're not really that fussed about that just seems to kind of distract you but yeah so the fact that these all kind of were of equal weight i thought was quite good but yeah there's fairly you know fundamental flaws in quite a lot of them um yeah the music business like you mentioned it wasn't quite as bad as i'd kind of added <laughs> in my head you know you remember i always remember some of these like 80s, 90s ones, and just thinking, oof, but wasn't quite as cringe worthy <laughs> as I thought. Uh, so, yeah, in, in terms of police shields, then I, I might go say 70. Uh, I think it's oof. kind of, you know, maybe high 60s, 7 out of 10 probably been slightly generous but they're thereabouts I'll stick with 70 yeah
0: okay that's fair enough and I'll move on to Morgan then okay
2: well I've I've, I've got
0: yeah
1: I've got to the end of this and I thought oh I've got opinions on this <laughs>
0: um yeah
1: as we, we always talk about I'm um, uh, getting a lot of plates spinning uh, in these novels. And I think for the first time, I really felt like uh, uh, several of the plates stopped spinning and actually fell to the floor and smashed into many pieces. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be too mean because I did really enjoy it, as I always do. Uh, flew through it, as as Steve always saying. But I, I, I feel like almost every strand of it failed on at least some level. Um and ultimately it kind of adds up to the worst in the series so far for me, like worse Ooh. than ghosts. Blimey! Um, so I Flippin am, heck. I am going, <laughs> which, <laughs> I'm going in with a score of um fifty police shields.
0: Right. Oh gosh! Wow, <laughs> worse than ghosts. Yep. Bloody
2: hell! Worse than. Dutch ghosts. (laughs) Strong
0: words, I know, but, you know, I've said them now. I can't take them back. Yeah, I know. You're on tape. Um, Okay, well, my feeling is that there's... What I do like is I like... uh, I don't know if like's quite the right word. Reading it now and I was talking about how it felt relevant. A lot of it did feel relevant. The stuff about, you know, how how cities are on edge. The stuff about the fact that pro-choice things are still going on that we haven't to have these discussions in fact um there's there's always something in there that remains pretty universal for better or worse usually worse sadly in these these things which is makes it interesting to read i like that most of the cops get more to do maya maya has something more to do than he's had for a while but i'm i am yeah lots of threads that don't quite feel like they're I don't know. Or or, will, or would you read it in some cases and just think, oh, it's like I've been given a bumper omnibus 87th precinct <laughs> thing here, especially if you've just read Kiss as the book before. I don't know. It's I don't need to worry about other people, though, do I? No. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I can't go as low as 50, but I wouldn't go as high as 70 either. So do you know what? While we're doing rounded numbers, I'm going to go in the middle and say 60. So, you know, that simply gives us 60 <laughs> Overall, that's what that's what it comes out as. There we go. It's a it's a six out of ten in uh, in our summing up anyway. Right. Well, quick oh. look at some of the contemporary reviews while Kenneth is digesting that information into his data banks. Uh, Marilyn Stacio in the New York Times says, "You can always feel the anger of the city in the jumpy dialogue and jangling rhythms of Ed McBain's 87 Precinct Procedurals." Brilliantly engineered, the scheme, this is the deaf man's scheme, is also dazzling for the great cast of oddball characters who figure in its daring execution. Yeah, it's... Um, dark insight into human nature. I mean, it, that reads like she's impressed with it, but oh. she didn't actually say, this is great. But um, uh, Matthew Cody in The Guardian says, The 87th Precinct Squad is taunted yet again by their pre- preposterous old adversary, the deaf man, as he plans a bizarre <laughs> heist. Um... In the background, U.S. society disintegrates with Alzheimer victims being abandoned like unwanted pets. Familiar formula gets a social gloss. So, again, he doesn't really commit whether he likes it or not. Right, uh, Michael Painter in the Irish Times is saying, How Mr. McBain manages to keep these 87th Precinct novels so fresh over all the years is beyond me, but this one is as vividly entertaining as any in the series. So, he's opposite to you there, Morgan. Yeah.
1: I feel like a proper Newgate calendar now.
0: (laughs) Well, I've also got one from Jim Bidolf writing in the South China Morning Post, of all places. I don't think I've referred to that one, uh, that source before. Uh, It says, Ed McBain has written so many crime books that I imagine nowadays he just programs his word processor with a few keywords and lets the thing rip on automatic. Uh, in this one, the 87th Precinct is faced with a double problem. Someone is murdering spray can graffiti vandals and someone is leaving superannuated grannies and grandpas littering the city. He doesn't even mention the deaf man. <laughs> uh, it certainly does not tax the brain, but does have its nuggets of information. McBain fans will love it. So, I I do know a lot of people do really love this book. Hmm. Um, and I can I sort of can see why. It is what it is to whoever's reading it. And yeah. We, that's we the go. way we do it. Uh, and so I will just leave you as well with something from The Guardian in 1993. It's a questionnaire that Ed McBain is being asked, presumably as part of the uh, promo for this. It's to go into the book pages of the newspapers. So it's asked questions like, what is your idea of perfect happiness? And he says, writing. Um, with which historical figure do you most identify? And he says, Charlemagne, because he rhymes with champagne. <laughs> um, which living person do you most admire? Evan Hunter, because he seems very much like me. Let's see what else we've got in here. Which living person do you most despise? There are two, Reagan and Bush, for almost destroying America. <laughs> in case you needed to know what his politics were. <laughs> Which words or phrases do you mostly o- most overuse? And apparently it's jolly good and super. <laughs> jolly good? I can imagine him in his New York accent saying those things. Yeah. Uh, what is your greatest regret? That London isn't closer to New York. Mm. I don't know if that's because he still wants to strangle a guy from the Guardian from that other article <laughs> last time we Probable. were talking about <laughs> A couple more. When and where were you happiest? This is enigmatic. Room 704, the Sunrise Motel, Albuquerque, New Mexico, September the 2nd, 1963. Gosh. I... I didn't bother looking that up. I wasn't no. really able to find anything there. I checked my timeline. I didn't have anything for those dates. Um, and uh, what keeps you awake at night? Raccoons, he says. <laughs> so there you go. I don't think he was taking that seriously. <laughs> right. Okay. So that is book number 45, Mischief. Um, we'll be back with our bonus episode. So look out for that. And then after that, will we will be back. We will be back with book 47 because we've done all through the house the christmas story we did it at christmas so we jump ahead to book 47 and we're in the last nine of the series (laughs) so 1995's romance is the next one so until then i am going to say goodbye as is steve-o goodbye and morgan
1: fairly well